Hello, my name is, uh, as Pastor Otua, or Patwa said, is uh, Abe, the campus pastor here. And if you are really having to do something, like call me something different, I'm okay with Father Abraham. Um, I've been called Father Abraham since I was about four years old, so I'm, I'm all right with it. Uh, it's weird, though. Anyway, <clears throat> over the past few weeks, the pastors here at the Church of the Beloved Network, we've been focusing on the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ according to Mark, as he had shared. And this is a really fast-paced record of what I like to call a mosaic of the Messiah. There are lots of little components and stories, and that's intended to paint a picture of hope. And it's a picture of hope that was sorely needed by the original readers of this particular book. And I know it's been shared a little bit, but I'd like to recap. And just as a reminder, give you some context to paint a picture of those original readers, the original audience that Mark was writing to. Now, this book was being passed around from underground church to underground church back in about 59-60 AD under the Roman Empire. The emperor's name was Nero. Um, and around that time, you may have you know, seen cartoons or seen pictures of uh, an emperor playing a violin while a city burned around him. This is the emperor, Emperor Nero. So he let Rome burn for over a week. 80% of that city was destroyed. And a lot of people started to think, you know what, I bet Nero did it. Nero was getting a little crazy. It was getting really cruel and really immoral. And so they're like, yeah, I think Nero's the one that caused the fire. So Emperor Nero, in an effort to avoid you know, the ramifications of, uh, of blame, points his finger at the Christians. And so he ends up sending out his Roman soldiers to start gathering them up. And so started a reign of terror and torture for the Christians of Rome. It was a, a time of great persecution for those Christians. You know, there were um, the stories that they have been passed down is basically Nero would take the skin of wild animals and tie them to the bodies of these Christians and then let feral dogs loose on them so that they would be ripped apart. He would dip these Christians in tar, tie them to a post, and light them up so that he could have fire around his private gardens. He would let them loose in the Colosseum, just let lions go, just for fun, to watch them be eaten alive. This was the church. This were the persecuted Christians. It was in the midst of all this that this letter from Mark shows up. This gospel appears. You know, if you can imagine, they're sitting there just freaking out, like, am I going to survive today? And suddenly a word of hope comes to their hands, to their ears. It's a, it was a reminder of their salvation, of their source of hope. It reminded them that the Savior that they believed him, just as they were suffering, suffered as well. And it reminded them, and it reminds us that we are the beloved of God. See, it was intended by Mark for the reader to remember that they believe in a God that has 
the ultimate authority over everything, all things. And this authority over everything resulted in Jesus Christ creating a brand new covenant, a brand new promise, a brand new religion, and as a result, a brand new family. And that brings us to today's passage. So today we're going to focus on Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 35. And for those of you who have been following along, we have a little scripture reading plan. This is available at the Welcome Kiosk. Just to help break down and make uh, reading of Mark a little bit easier, a little bite-sized chunks. Um, today's passage was actually included in last week's scheduled reading. Um, if you haven't had an opportunity to read chapter 7 or through this reading plan, it might be a good time to start. It's an amazing opportunity to read through um, chapter 3. They've broken down verses 7 to 35 into tiny little chunks and includes infer, uh, you know, lessons around apologetics, around evangelism, ministry. There's just a lot of information in that one little chapter. Um, we also started providing these journals. And it says uh, just the book of Mark. And on one side is the scripture. On the other side is just space. I'll, I'll go to a white space. Just white space for you to be able to capture your notes and your thoughts around this. And, and we are also going to be starting a new season of small groups this week where we're going to either continue or start diving deeper into Mark. So they have more resources around that available. But today, today I want to consider specifically Christ's teaching about family. Okay? <clears throat> so um, modern society today, I think many of you will probably be familiar with this or understand this, is there is a huge uh, return, a, a return to a very Hindu philosophy, which is that all paths lead to heaven. Right? Even within Christianity, there is a, uh, a belief called universalism, and, and universalism believes that everyone will eventually be saved. Um, this passage that we read today, though it wasn't originally intended to address these ideas, ultimately, they do, if we consider the context around them. Because you see, Mark's goal for this particular mosaic piece was to remind the intended readers of this, uh, of Christ's authority. And the authority is not to repair, as Patois talked a bit about last week, repair the old religion or the law, but rather to complete it and replace it. And to replace and establish a new religion or a new covenant that ultimately redefines the idea of the family of God. So what we're saying here is Jesus is explaining that the family of God doesn't include everyone everywhere. All paths do not lead to heaven. Not everyone will be saved from hell. And I will tell you, even saying that out loud hurts me and frightens me. But we want to look at this new definition of family and understand it so hopefully we can live it 
and hopefully we can share it with those around us. First of all, I want you to understand, and we'll dive deeper into this, that the family of God is not biological. It's not based on biology. And the family of God is not inspirational. It's not based on being inspired by Jesus Christ. But the family of God is transformational. It's based on a miraculous transformation by the Holy Spirit. I want to unpack those three ideas now. The first thing is this. It's not biological. What I mean is that no one is born into the family of God. All right? This may seem fairly logical for a lot of people, but it was extremely important, especially in Mark's time, because he was talk talking to, to Jews, Jews who now believed in Jesus Christ, but Jews nonetheless, Jews who always understood themselves to be the chosen one, the special elect people of God. And the only one way to be a part of that chosen nation was to be born into that nation, born into that family. And suddenly Jesus is now saying, that's not the case anymore. Verses 31 to 33, let me read that back to you. It says this, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him, and sent to him, and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? I was, uh, I was traveling one year in Morocco with my wife, Suzette. And I remember as we were traveling around, there were, we, we came up uh, and met a local gentleman, and started talking about religion. And he said the most fascinating and uh, surprising thing to me. And basically he said, you know, I thought all Americans born in America, they, I thought they're all Christian. I thought they're born Christian. Just like all people born in Morocco are born Muslim. And it, it made me realize that faith for him was not a spirit-enabled uh, reconciliation with God religion is a birthright. Religion was a birthright that's transmuted from the parents to the kids. It's not a personal decision. It's a societal expectation. And this was very much the mindset of the Jewish people at the time, even today. I think that it actually still applies to modern society. You've probably heard the term lapsed Jew or lapsed Catholic. Because religion becomes more of a cultural identity than an actual faith identity. You know, the whole thing is this. Jesus is trying to make you understand that becoming part of the family of God is not biology. It's something more. And I should caveat this. I'm not trying to say that your earthly family is not important. I know that there are many who still struggle with their parental relationships or sibling relationships, and I'm not giving you an excuse to hate them now. Ultimately, Jesus understands the value of family. Even Jesus' family understood the value of family in their own way. If you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, Mark wrote, then he, speaking of Jesus, and he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. 
Now, I, I don't know if this is something that you've experienced, this idea of being so busy with work or project that you actually forget to eat. I am one um, who loves food way too much to allow the grumbling of my stomach to not cause me to find the kitchen. But if you are one of those, I think I would, if a loved one of mine were in that situation, I might react the same way. Like, that's crazy. You know, I, I care about them too much to allow them to not eat. Now, I, I, the, the family, Jesus' family, you have to get that it wasn't all out of love that they were calling him crazy and trying to get him to eat food. You see, uh, we have to consider the context a little bit. They, they, they were, they're Middle Eastern, right? So Middle Eastern culture is very honor and shame based. I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but you may have heard the term thing like honor killing. And honor killing is what happens when family decides that an individual in the family has brought so much shame upon the family that they have to kill that person to restore honor within the family. Um, so, so the idea of an honor and shame-based culture, among other things, it is that priority one is the family. There is no such thing as an individual. So when one person in the family does something like make the Pharisees angry, he is bringing shame upon the entire family. It's not about the individual. So to be individualistic is actually considered one of the worst sins that you can do in an honor-shame culture. And so in verse 20 and 21, you see Jesus has returned home, most likely is Capernaum, and his family who lived in Galilee, which is far, far away, they've actually traveled to where Jesus is because he's bringing this honor to the family. And as they're getting there, they realize, oh, he's not eating as well. Because that's the, that's the other thing about an honor-shame-based culture. Food is a big, big priority. It's not how you eat, where you eat, who you eat with. It brings about honor or shame on the family. And so here they are trying to restore the honor of the family when Jesus keeps on left and right just bringing shame upon them. So they, they love him in their own way, but they're just trying to restore the honor of the family in the process. And as I was reading this and thinking about the family, I realized that there are probably a lot of us who kind of get that. You know, if you're coming from a South Asian or Middle Eastern background, you probably fully understand the importance and priority that family has. I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in India. I, I spent a lot of time in an area called Bangalore. Uh, and, you know, I, um, I, I was witness to the closeness that family has there. I mean, you're going to have, uh, you know, my Indian friends, their parents, they're so tight with the, the grandparents, the uncles, the aunts, the children, the nieces, the nephews, the, the uncle twice removed. They live together. They eat together. They do everything together. They go on vacation together. They sleep in the same rooms. It's just really, really tight. So I, I, I get the importance of family there. And, and I come from an East Asian culture. I'm Korean. And in Korean, I get the importance of food and, and, and how food is absolutely the, the center point. In Korean culture, oftentimes you don't say hello, you say, have you eaten yet? You know, and for me, I show my love to my parents who now live in New York by sending them, you know, good pizza. Chicago pizza pies, Luminati's freeze-dried. Every few months I ship it out to them because they need good pizza. 
they don't have it in New York. Um, so ultimately, Jesus also understood the importance of family. He got it. He understood that the earthly family is valuable. It's important. He's dying on the cross, a torturous death, and he looks down at John, the disciple he loves, and says, John, take care of my mom. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, Jesus isn't saying that the family granted to us as a part of God's master plan isn't important, isn't worthy of our love and our care and our devotion. What Jesus is saying is that there is a new priority when it comes to the beloved of God through Christ alone. You see, the priority now over the biological or earthly family is the biblical or the gospel family. And you have to understand that first and foremost, foremost, entry into this family is not a birthright. It's not a foregone conclusion. It is not an inheritance you're going to be receiving. You are not born a Christian because you were born into a Christian family. Now, don't get me wrong. For those of you who are parents, this is vital. This being born into a Christian family allows your child to be given easier access to and a presentation of the gospel from the very beginning. But that's not what defines your adoption into the family of God. Because we're not born Christian, but we can be born again as a Christian. So membership into the family of God is not biological, nor is it inspirational. And let me explain what I mean by that. Now, I've been alive on this planet for about 46 years, and for some of you, you're like, wow, that's nothing. And for others around here, probably thinking, my God, how is he still alive? But I've been alive here for 46 years, and over that time, I've seen and I've heard a lot of people say, essentially, Jesus is cool, right? Back in the day when I was growing up, there was a phrase that we used to use. It was more of a a revolt to establish religion. And we say, Jesus is my homeboy. And I I went to my millennial translator. I have one. Her name is Courtney. Uh, She's not here today. But I went to Courtney and I said, Courtney, my millennial translator, can you please explain to me what word would I use to replace homeboy? And she laughed at me. She says, I think what you would use is Jesus is my bra. Bra? Bro? B-R-U. B-R-U-H, thank you. B-R is my, Jesus is my bra. So basically, the idea is this. Jesus is saying, people are saying, Jesus, you know, I, I love his teachings. I love his grace, his mercy, his kindness. I love his miracles. They're cool. They're nice. As, you know, Patois would say, they're chill. He's chill. Um, but not much more than that. He's a great speaker. But... You know, if if he had an Instagram account, I would follow it. But that's basically it. Um, But some, but today's passage ultimately points out that merely being interested and thinking Jesus is nice is not enough to be considered part of the family of God. 
Jesus is about to introduce this culture-bending conclusion about the new definition of family. And right before he does, he takes a look around. In verse 34, the first half, he says, and looking about at those who sat around him. He's looking around, and we can get a sense, we can get an idea of who's in that room right now, if we think about it. Because it was standing room only already. It was so packed, his family couldn't get in to drag him out. And, and, and we know that the Pharisees were there and the scribes were there because they were trying to pick and choose and try to you know, argue with Jesus in that. We've known that the people that he had healed and probably people who had been possessed by demons, they were probably, and no longer, they were probably sitting there as well. It's likely there are people there who were really, you know, kind of interested. They liked the words coming out, so they wanted to hear a bit more of it. There are probably people there who were suffering a little FOMO. They were walking past, and there's so many people gathered around, so uh, they just got in line and tried to figure out what's happening, not really sure what's going on. But ultimately... Being inspired and just sitting around because Jesus makes nice speeches and good teaching, being inspired by the greatest teacher ever is not enough to be considered a member of the family of God. You see, simply enjoying the impact of faith, appreciating social activism that the church might be involved in or, or the sense of community that the church affords is not enough to be considered a member of the family of God. We are so glad, if this is you, that you are here with us and we love you. But this is not enough to be considered a member of the family of God. It's not inspiration. It's not biology. Ultimately, what is it? How does one become an adopted child in God's family? How, how does one become a part of the community of the beloved of God? Verses 34 and 35, Jesus tells us exactly how. Starting with verse 34, he says, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brother, brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There it is. It's not biology. It's not adoption into God's family is not an inheritance or a foregone conclusion. Being inspired and amazed by signs or, or nice words isn't how one becomes a part of the community of the beloved of God. It's by being transformed by the renewing of your heart. It's, it's the family of God consists of whoever does the will of God. And these are the brothers and the sisters of Jesus Christ. And unlike an earthly family that might be bonded by blood or by uh, legalities, unlike a community of people who are drawn together by a common goal or, or an inspiring leader, the family of God, it consists of those who do the will of God. It's as simple as that. Membership into the family of God is not complex. It just requires following the will of God. But then you're going to have to ask, so how do I know what the will of God is for me? Ultimately, I don't know what it is for you individually, but 
in the last five, 10 minutes, what I want to end with is this. I want to give you three signs, three ideas to consider as you seek out the truth of God's will for you personally. All right? And the first thing I want you to consider is this. If you want to seek out God's will for your own life, then number one, understand that God's will is good. It's never bad. It's never against you. You may be facing difficulties. You may be thinking, God, how could you allow this to happen in my life right now? Why is this pressure on me? Why am I feeling this pain? But ultimately, understand God's will is good. That's the truth of it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. The second thing to consider as you seek out to understand the will of God for yourself, for your, for your own life, is this. The primary intent of God's will is very simple. It's so that all might know God through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's first letter in 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he wrote this. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's hope is that all might come to the knowledge of the truth. The primary intent of God's will is that his beloved would come to understand, would come to believe the gospel message, the truth. The truth that God sent his one and only son to earth, Jesus, to go from God to man so that he could be a replacement for our sins. The final thing to consider is this, as you seek out God's will for your life, is, is that ultimately the best way to understand God's will is to know this. This is... Bible. Oh, sorry. It's not just some leather book. Um, to know it, to know God's will, we have to know this. We have to know God's words. Psalms chapter 119, verse 105 reads this Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I was thinking about how best to illustrate this idea. And um, so uh, my wife and I, we can't have children, and I've mentioned this before, so it's another story, but uh, as a result, I grew up as a pastor's kid. And so therefore, as a pastor's kid, unfortunately, I had the distinct pleasure of being the example in almost every single one of my dad's sermons. Thankfully, they were all in Korean, so I only understood a little bit of them, but I have a feeling that they were all really, 
I don't know, because the way people reacted to me in general after service was just weird. But anyway, I don't have children, so unfortunately that means more often than not, my wife will be the example that I use for most of my stories, or at least in one illustration in each of my messages. And so the illustration I want to give is this. My wife hates scary movies. She hates horror movies to the extreme. She will often say, I used to like them. I've watched Exorcist and Poltergeist, which are movies that are old enough that many of you may never have even heard of them in this room. But ultimately, they were scary movies back in the day. But she, she hates them. Yes, they are. Anyway, she hates them. She cannot, she cannot even handle the titles themselves. They will give her nightmares, and I will suffer the consequences of them. So I beg you, please, do not mention any scary movie names to my wife because I will come after you. But I, I am okay with them. I actually kind of enjoy them. I don't know what's wrong with me. I, like, I will, when I travel, I will typically look for a scary movie on TV, turn off the lights, lock the door, and just try to freak myself out. I remember when I was doing that once, watching The Ring, not realizing that there's a TV involved in that Ring that movie. But, so this is, this is what I realized here. I have a, a, a husbandly duty. Um, one is to make sure that no one ever exposes my wife to scary movies. That's just rule number one. Rule number two, because my wife suffers FOMO, I need to tell her about the scary movie in the most unscary way possible, as matter-of-factly, as dryly as I possibly can. For example, The Ring. It's about a dead girl. She's wet. She likes to climb out of TVs that are turned off. That's the movie. So that's basically what my role is as a husband. And so when we were first dating and then married, I did not know that this was my responsibility, the expectation of who I am. But as I spent time growing with my wife, getting to know her, spending time with her, having her remind me on a regular basis how much she doesn't like scary movies, waking me up in the middle of the night staring at me because she just had a nightmare because someone mentioned the name of a scary movie. Um, I learned what her will is. I learned, she became the lamp to my feet. I lacked wisdom of her desire for me, and she was more than willing and happy to give that wisdom to me on a regular and consistent basis. And this is the promise that God gives to you. This is what he's saying. If you take the time to get to know him better, by reading scripture on a regular basis, devoting your time to knowing him, to growing in him, to getting to know him, then his will becomes obvious to you. There's no secret sauce. There's no special formula. There's no shortcut to it. It's through that relationship, through that growth, through that devotion that you come to know his will. David Platt, he's a pastor and an author. He wrote about this once. He said this, far more important than looking and searching for God's will is simply knowing and trusting God. Because see, this is what he desires of us. He wants everyone to know him. He wants to include you into his family. And he's given you the roadmap to doing this. 
Jesus came to replace the old religion. He came to replace it with a, with a new covenant. A covenant between God and humanity. Jesus came to ultimately redefine who his family is. It's, he's intending it to go beyond biology, beyond culture, beyond tradition. Jesus died so that we might have the opportunity to become a part of that new family. And it isn't because we're born into it. It's not an inheritance. It's not a foregone conclusion. It's not by a birthright. It's not because we think Jesus is interesting. He's chill. He's my bra. Membership into the family of God requires us to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that while you and I were still sinners, while we are still separated from God, Christ took on the judgment for sin, provided us an opportunity for restoration and reconciliation with God, for an opportunity for a relationship to be able to call him Father and to become a member of the family of God. And the roadmap to this adoption is available to us. It's reserved for those who do God's will. Will you pray with me as we close?